Guildhall is the historic seat of power within the City of London. It's a towering stone mishmash of a structure, first built in its current form in 1411, before being damaged by the Great Fire of London in 1666 and bombed out by the Luftwaffe in 1940. It's been restored and added to countless times, and the grand entranceway, designed and built by George Dance in 1788 in what was then uncomfortably called Hindustani Gothic style, looms over Guildhall Yard, a reminder of the city's strange imperial self-governance, its permanent liminal flip-flopping between unbending mercantile behemoth and flighty bellwether of the international city as a concept. If you stand just to the left of the ceremonial entrance, you can trace a circular path around the yard, following a specially laid curved line of dark stone, which marks the site of a former Roman amphitheatre, rediscovered by archaeologists in 1988. Here, beneath the historic heart of the city, thousands of people and animals fought and died for the entertainment of the assembled masses, until it crumbled and fell sometime around AD 60. If you're visiting the city, you can go in through the Guildhall Art Gallery, down through the winding basement corridors, and find a reproduction of the old amphitheatre, holographic gladiators and all. It's an almost two-on-the-nose representation of the city's history, all laid out in one place. Above, the hobnobbing centre of the business capital, host to diplomats and CEOs, theatre and ideology. Beneath, blood sports and circuses, killers and petty tyrants, theatre and ideology, all in the same place, for over 2,000 years. All of which begs the question, how did such a significant building end up pushed downwards and forgotten, the city buried beneath the city? And furthermore, if this geographically unassuming spot above a strategically complicated river in an isolated island nation has been drawing people so strongly to it for 2,000 years. What, then, is buried beneath that? I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. It's a relatively uncontroversial statement in 2019 to say that the Romans founded the formal city of London, then Londinium, but I'll use the word London throughout this podcast, in around AD 43. There's evidence of earlier settlements, including recovered weapons indicating a battle on the banks of the Thames at some point in prehistory, and the remains of an ancient wooden bridge near Vauxhall, but that's the thing about the Romans. When they moved into a new territory, they'd always tell the story of building it from scratch, of reclaiming it from hostile nature and savage itinerant tribes. Aulus Plautius was responsible for the first major settling party, and there's been extensive writing on how he wound his way up the southeastern coast and along the Thames. London was picked mostly because it worked as a port city which was far enough upriver that it could be defended against Germanic raiding parties, plus it was a good focal point for the road network the Romans discovered upon landing there. It's all very practical stuff, really, and I'll leave it to the hardcore historians to run through the actual details of the ancient world. I'm more interested in the cultural myth-making around this historic moment. We still have records of the stories that Plautius' scribes sent back to the Roman people, and evidence about how they were interpreted. They told the story of Gog and Magog, 
twin giants who led a tribe of mercilessly inbred Gorgons which stood in for the various pre-existing ethnic groups in pre-Roman Britain. In the stories, Gog and Magog were presented as huge, animalistic savages whose culture was predicated on cannibalism and an itinerant plunder. They were modelled in statues wearing grim mockeries of Roman centurion costumes and were often played by men wearing stilts and monstrous makeup. Gog and Magog had previously been used as stand-ins for a variety of enemies of Rome, and their function was no different in this context. They stood for the barbarian other, the uncultured, the untamed, and, most importantly, the too primitive to bargain with. Of course Plautius had to bring civilization to these people by way of the sword. How was he supposed to negotiate with a horde of baby-eating giants? I should note at this point that the names Gog and Magog are some of the most broadly used ones in the historical record. There are Old Testament figures named Gog and Magog in the book of Ezekiel, and they crop up in the Quran, and the figures of giants named Gog and Magog, or occasionally one giant named Gog Magog, appear all over the primary sources I consulted in my research for this episode. Much of early written history is an interpolation of different sources and ideas, usually written with an eye to propping up whatever story the teller is attempting to lay out, so it's not too surprising that you see repeating cultural motifs like this get reinserted and reinterpreted by different writers. The important thing here is that something about those names, and the returning image of impossible giants cannibalising those who disturb them, has lodged itself in the hindbrain of human culture for thousands of years now, as a haunting spectre of indiscriminate violence in the peripheral vision of civilization. I have a lot of friends who try to avoid London Zone 1 at all costs. For those not familiar with the city, our public transport system is a series of concentric circles, and you're charged depending on which zones you go between. Zone 1 is the centre, and it contains just about all of the landmarks you might associate with London, as well as the major business districts. To someone like me, that makes it the centre of the universe, but to a lot of people, that makes it an incredibly tedious place to try to navigate, since it's permanently full of dawdling tourists and aggro city boys getting into coked up arguments over who's the best business-to-business ferry windscreen wiper salesman. Zone 1 is roughly aligned to the historic cities of London and Westminster, which were originally separate, with Westminster being founded by the monarchy to compete with the Crown Independent London. Of course, we now think of Westminster as being a part of London, which has sprawled out and absorbed dozens of small towns and villages which used to surround it as distinct entities. What is it about this small area on the Thames which gives it this bowling ball on a rubber sheet gravitational pull? It's not even the only major water body in the area. Modern London is crisscrossed with canals and underground rivers, the shadow of the ancient Thames tributaries spirited away beneath the streets to afford more space for development. Most famously, the River Fleet used to run along the centre of Fleet Street, which is now known for being the journalistic heart of the city, due to the many newspapers and publishing houses which set up shop along it. Ironically, most of the newspapers have now closed or moved elsewhere, and Fleet Street has again become a street haunted by what wants to find it. These underground rivers give London a unique character though, even in comparison to other cities like Copenhagen and Amsterdam, which are closely associated with their canals and waterways. It's a city which is constantly shifting slightly, the loose clay sinking through the cracks and the man-made tunnels designed to constrain and remap the disobedient water. If you stand on Ludgate Hill at 3am on a Sunday evening, 
Gazing up towards St Paul's Cathedral, you constrain your ears to hear the forgotten rivers rushing beneath your feet, gradually eroding caverns in the clay. A geologist will tell you that London clay is a mix of hydrous aluminium phyllosilicates, quartz and chert, and small amounts of other chemicals like feldspar and iron, but it's also got significant organic deposits running through it. The same soft, sturdy structure which made it perfect for tunnelling the London underground has also absorbed the fossilised remains of millions of creatures over the years. The land is given and taken away in almost perfect harmony for millennia, feeding and feeding off in endless cycles, devouring the dead and sustaining the living. You can never really take from this city, only borrow, and perhaps default on payments for a time, but history shows that all debts will one day be repaid. There is one significant thing that the Romans brought with them which really defines and separates their civilization from those it overtook. Although there's evidence of large stone dwellings across the British Isles prior to their arrival, they're relatively rare and primarily take the form of either brochs, round, dry stone structures built without mortar resembling large chimneys, or wheelhouses, which were sunk into the ground and then roofed over with wood and soil. Pre-Roman structures in Britain were predominantly dry stone piles, given form by wood and thatch, with most ordinary Britons living in late Iron Age Atlantic roundhouses. The arrival of the Romans marked the arrival of large-scale, freestanding stone architecture in everyday life. As Paul Virilio puts it, the invention of the ship was also the invention of the shipwreck, and so it follows that the invention of the freestanding stone structure was also the invention of the ruined foundation often the last remaining aspect of these grand structures. To build anything on London clay requires sturdy and deep foundations to prevent it from sinking down into the earth, quite unlike the limestone and volcanic rock on which Rome was built. There's archaeological evidence that several attempts to recreate stone architecture in the area sank and crumbled into the earth before they discovered how to fully reinforce structures for the long term. Fragments of London walls survive to this day, mostly due to the deep and heavy foundations dug by enslaved locals forced to work for the Romans. Throughout this episode, I've been very careful with my words. You might have noticed it and hopefully felt a little infuriated by it. I've been describing the Romans as settlers who discovered areas in Britain, buying entirely into the Roman account of the colonisation. The Romans were very hot on controlling the narrative, and reading Julius Caesar's reports of his very first invasion in 55 BC, it's easy to picture him standing beneath the big mission accomplished sign as he declared the locals pacified to their great chagrin. The Romans renamed roads in their own honour decimated the local population, stole their knowledge of the land and its unique geology, and yet still considered themselves liberators of the savage tribes. Of course, that's not the only side to the story. In AD 60, Queen Boudicca led an army of native Britons in an uprising against the Roman government in London. This event was endlessly romanticised in the Victorian times as a patriotic attempt to reclaim the nation from hostile invaders, but it's perhaps better understood as a peasant revolt. She led a force, 
reportedly at 230,000 people, but likely significantly less, to sack Colchester and London before being wiped out by a much smaller Roman force somewhere in the Midlands. It was an act of immense bravery, yes, but less glamorous than the fantasists would have you believe. Starved and desperate and untrained, they were cut down en masse by the Roman legions, their bones ploughed into the earth and their homes razed, another tragic blip in the history of imperial struggle. Boudicca had a scribe of her own, a woman named Lanicea, and she wrote detailed texts on the uprising. These survived for one reason only, which is that the Romans found them entertaining. The idea of a woman writing was a curious novelty to the Romans, and they kept it as a sort of an example of outsider art, showing what they considered to be a bizarre and unfortunate perspective on the benevolent Roman expansion. In it, she talks about her time working in slavery in London, building the amphitheatre which now lies beneath Guildhall Yard. Her writing has a refreshingly rote feel to it in comparison to the florid Roman texts I read to prepare for this. It's practical, earthy even, aiming at a factual account of events, her literacy stemming as it does from her original position as a building site clerk. She was appointed as Boudicca's scribe because she was one of very few literate slaves, and the Asini clan which Boudicca represented believed that they were recording the start of the grand rollback of Roman rule across Europe. I'd like to read from her account of the building of the amphitheatre, shortly after the founding of the city, in about AD 45. Originally written in Greek, the dates and measurements have been translated into their English equivalents to make it easier to understand. 7th May. Plans for amphitheatre completed. Location north of London Market secured and cleared of traders. 10th May. Work team mustered. 30 Celts supplied by Plautius, kept in northeast barracks. 15th May. Worksite readied. Foundation digging to begin tomorrow. 16th May. Construction held up. Unexpected hard deposits found 1.5 metres deep. Appears to be a long, yellow-white mineral seam of some kind. Pickaxes fetched. Work resumes tomorrow. 17th May. Pickaxes used on mineral deposits all day with no progress. Celts working in shifts. One elderly Celt overheated and fell into the pit, unable to revive. Romans instructed us to keep working. Each of us flogged five times for slow progress. 18th May. Strange disturbance on dig site overnight. Mineral deposits appear to have moved and enlarged, one now jutting from ground. Estimate two to three meters long. Resembles large finger bone with fleshy deposits growing on it. Attempting to dig around them. Flogged ten times each for slow progress. 19th May. Bones pushed down into ground pit dug around them. Gravel poured for foundations, covered with soil and hard stone. Three days off track, but work can now proceed. The geological record has nothing to say about these mineral deposits beneath the amphitheatre, but large numbers of human and animal bones were discovered in the centre of it when it was re-excavated, indicating that gladiator matches began taking place almost immediately. Given Roman tendencies, there's a high chance that the Celts who built the arena were the first to fight in it. It was considered both good luck and good practice to execute the work team after a large project, 
to prevent them from sabotaging it with their specialist knowledge. Somehow, Lanicea survived, although there's a gap in her writing between about AD 52 and AD 59, at which point she started working as a scribe for the budding uprising. It's through her writing that we know about Boudicca uniting the different Celtic tribes under the Iceni, and about the six to eight months they spent beating their plowshares into swords in preparation for the rebellion. Again, I'll leave it to a more conventional historian to recount the sacking of Colchester and the initial strikes against the Romans. We rejoin Lanicea as the victorious Celts marched into London in summer of AD 60. June 22nd. Our forces have begun sacking London. We took the old gate by noon, killing 150 Romans who manned the battlements with ease. The walls are higher than I remember, no doubt reinforced by hundreds of dead Celts. Grain silos have been taken. Small holdout force remains in the amphitheatre. 30 to 50 Romans have barricaded the entrance to the great amusement of our troops. We intend to have them fight for our entertainment as once we did for them. June 23rd. All major strategic points secured. Roman blood runs freely in the streets. Estimate 20 to 30 Celtic casualties versus approximately 2,000 Romans killed. Fires are raging above the city. Amphitheatre remains blockaded. Our warriors have begun throwing the heads of slain locals over the walls to the audible despair of those within. We believe the Romans have begun digging possibly attempting to tunnel out? Unclear what they're aiming for. Druids called to resolve situation. Tomorrow is midsummer. Plans for festival are almost complete. We intend to celebrate our victory by destroying this city as a reminder to the Romans never to return. Good omens. There's no entry for June 24th. Then, the next day, we read her final entry for the uprising's fateful encounter with the returning Roman phalanx somewhere near Kettering. June 25th. Forces are routed. I write this on horseback, fleeing north towards Caledonia. We had no idea. Hundreds, possibly thousands left behind, dead or mortally wounded. That cursed city feeds on blood. The bones we found all those years ago were just the beginning. The queen barely clings to life. Our army is decimated. The Romans in the amphitheatre release something terrible from beneath the earth. Twin gorgons grown in their own image. They may have been there all along. I fear they may never be sated, only buried deeper among the ruins. To whoever reads this, stay clear of that place at all costs. The sleeping giants of Gog and Magog await beneath the city. And one day, they will return. In the past few years, London Wall, the street, not the wall itself, although it follows the path of the old fortifications, has seen a huge amount of redevelopment, and as a condition of that construction, a lot of new public space has been created nearby, including the restoration of the 1960s High Walk, which runs between Guildhall and the Barbican. 
This passes over a section of the historic wall, including the ruins of the Roman fort gate, which are preserved and visible above ground. As part of the restoration, a team of historians were brought in to study the wall with the latest technology, including x-rays and ultrasounds designed to explore exactly where the stone was sourced from, how it was built, and how much of it has been replaced over the years. Obviously, most of the outside had been plundered and rebuilt in the 2000 years since it was originally laid out, but they were surprised to find that the core of the wall and its foundations were all original. What was most surprising, though, was a solid core that ran along the centre of the foundation, nearly half a metre in diameter and about 25 metres long, give or take. Permission was granted to explore further and a drill was called for, skimming into the very heart of the wall to establish exactly what it was they were looking at on the x-rays. When the reports came back from the lab, they revealed a shocking truth. Although most of the wall is made, predictably, of stone ferried on the backs of slaves from nearby quarries, at the heart of it lays the remains of a giant ancient femur bone. Most worrying, though, was that analysis of the x-ray showed stones had been significantly shifted and displaced from their original positions around it over time, leading inexorably towards one conclusion. It's growing. episode of Subterraneans, I explore the secrets of the London Underground and the Undercity growing beneath the ventilation system. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. We're also available on iTunes and Stitcher, and if you could go on there and uh, rate me five stars and leave a comment, that would be really, really helpful. Thank you so much for listening.